From beach towels to tea towels, and from mugs to water bottles, the TNT Shop has it all. Browse our shop now at tntradio.live. The latest information and analysis of major events from around the world. You're listening to Compass with Jason Olborn on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Hello and welcome to Compass. This is your global news hour. And on today's show, there are further cracks appearing in the mainstream as questions are being asked and comparisons made as voters more and more walk away from the political conventions and establishment power. Even in Australia, more and more predictions that Anthony Albanese will be another one-term government. Meanwhile, former military officer Scott Rita calls out the Pentagon after it fails its sixth annual audit in a row. We explore... Senator Dick Durbin's lack of political will to look into the Jeffrey Epstein flight logs and also look into a get-out clause of future US president in the AUKUS agreement. But first today, the Republican-led House Rules Committee has voted 9-4 to on Tuesday to send an impeachment inquiry resolution against President Biden to the House floor. The vote came after a meeting where members of the committee debated the resolution. The formal floor vote on the impeachment inquiry is scheduled for Wednesday US time. The resolution directs the relevant House committees to continue their ongoing investigations as part of the existing House of Representatives inquiry into whether sufficient grounds exist for the House of Representatives to exercise its constitutional power to impeach Joe Biden, President of the United States of America, and for other purposes. The House Committee's oversight and accountability, ways and means, and judiciary have been investigating President Biden's potential role in his family members' foreign business dealings, including his son Hunter and brother James. Meanwhile, speaking at a campaign fundraising event, Biden said that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is at risk of alienating himself amongst the international community in the bombardment of Gaza. They're starting to lose that support, Biden said at a campaign event, as reported by Reuters News Agency. Biden also said Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu needs to change his hardline government. Commenting on this is Shihab Ritanzi at the White House. And we should be very clear, this was a campaign fundraiser for the presidential campaign. This was not an official White House presidential event. When he's campaigning, he's Biden the candidate. He's not Biden the president. And what he said was, according to the pool report at a ballroom at a hotel not far from here, is Bibi has got a tough decision to make, referring to, Pres- to Prime Minister Netanyahu. This is the most conservative government in Israel's history, Biden said, adding that the government doesn't want a two-state solution. Israel is starting to lose support around the world, Biden said. Netanyahu, quote, has to strengthen and change, end quote, the Israeli government to find a long-term solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. When Biden is talking about Netanyahu losing support, he could also perhaps be talking about himself and the base of the Democratic Party because of the carte blanche, the green light that Biden has given to his old friend Benjamin Netanyahu to basically bombard Gaza and, and, and meanwhile with the U.S. also giving complete cover at the United Nations and elsewhere, despite that growing opposition that, that Biden is acknowledging here. But he's doing so as a candidate. He's also seemingly seeming to think that Netanyahu has some kind of political career ahead of him to strengthen and change the Israeli government, when actually I think if you ask a lot of people in Imran perhaps and, and and might know about it, more about this than, than, than I, yeah, there is that sense that as soon as the, the bombing stops, Netanyahu's own position will be in trouble. Meanwhile, the UN General Assembly overwhelmingly passed a non-binding resolution, here we go again, non-binding, urging humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza as Israeli bombardment continued. 
The WHO chief raised concerns after Israeli forces raided northern Gaza's Kamal Adwin Hospital and called for the protection of patients and medical workers in the UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, says Gaza has become one of the most dangerous places in the world amid deepening humanitarian crisis. And currently there are at least 18,400 Palestinians who have been killed since October 7. And the embattled Harvard president, Claudine Gay, has gained the unanimous support of the university's board. Harvard's highest governing body said in a statement on Tuesday, giving Gay significant cover to remain in her position after a tumultuous week in which many donors and politicians have called for her ouster. As members of the Harvard Corporation, we today reaffirm our support for President Gay's continued leadership of Harvard University, the statement from the Harvard Corporation said. Our extensive deliberations affirm our confidence that President Gay is the right leader to help our community heal and to address the very serious societal issues we are facing. In this tumultuous and difficult time, we unanimously stand in support of President Gay, the statement added. But strong criticism of Gay remains, and the board's statement of support may not be the final word on the matter. There is a reason why the testimony at the Education Workplace Conference Committee garnered one billion views worldwide, and it's because those university presidents made history by putting the most morally bankrupt testimony into the congressional record, and the world saw it, Congresswoman Elise Stefanik said at the weekly GOP leadership presser. This is a moral failure of Harvard's leadership and higher education leadership at the highest levels. Still, an outpouring of support for Gay on Monday from hundreds of faculty and alumni could have tipped the board's decision in her favour. More than 700 Harvard faculty members have signed a petition backing Gay. According to the 2023 Harvard Annual Report, the university has 1,068 tenured faculty plus 403 tenure track faculty. At the con con consequential December 5 hearing before the House Committee, Gay struggled to answer questions about whether calls for genocide against Jews would violate Harvard's code of conduct. She and other university presidents failed to explicitly say calls for genocide of Jewish people constituted bullying and harassment on campus. The exchanges went viral and prompted a flurry of business leaders, donors and politicians to demand Gay, McGill and MIT President Sally Kornbluth step down. The three presidents soon after attempted to clarify their testimony, publicly saying that they were giving academic answers to questions of safety and they believed calls for genocide would violate school rules. MIT's board quickly said it supported Cornbluff. Gay apologised last week in an interview with The Crimson. McGill, who resigned along with the Penn board chair Scott Bock, still has not apologised. And fighters have stormed a military post in northwestern Pakistan, killing at least 23 people in a gun and suicide bomb attack, according to the Pakistani military. The incident took place on Tuesday in the town of Daraban, about 60 kilometres from Dera Ishmael Khan city, located at the edge of the lawless tribal regions bordering Afghanistan. The fighters rammed a vehicle laden with explosives into the main gate of the police station, followed by a suicide bombing attack, said a statement by Inter-Services Public relations, the Pakistani army's media branch. The resulting blasts led to the collapse of the building, causing multiple casualties, the ISPR said, adding that six attackers who took part in the assault were killed. At least 34 people were injured and taken to a military hospital in Dera Ishmael Khan, sources in the rescue team said. The ISPR said that sanitisation operations are being conducted to eliminate any other terrorists present in the area. Pakistani group TJP said in a statement that its fighters carried out the attack aimed at the Pakistani army. The TJP claims to be linked to the Pakistani Taliban, known by the acronym TTP, an outlawed armed group which has targeted the state and its institutions 
for years. And firefighters said that they had searched the 12-foot tall pile of debris left by the collapse of a seven-storey building in the Bronx on Monday afternoon and found that no one had died or been severely injured. The officials said that on Monday night that two people had sustained minor injuries while evacuating the building. Miraculously, no one was severely injured at the partial building collapse, Laura Kavner. The fire commissioner said on social media, for hours, they searched for anyone who may have been trapped or injured. She continued, we have confirmed that no one was under that pile. On the street, walls and bricks lay in a jumble below the apartments that were now exposed to the cold afternoon air. With more, we join this report from local news, PIX11. The catastrophic apartment collapse was caught on security video. Pedestrians scattering on the sidewalk as six stories came crashing down at 1915 Billingsley Terrace. Once they start cracking, everybody start going out. Yet first responders had no immediate reports of anyone being crushed in the rubble. Maybe like an earthquake type noise, it was very loud. We watched firefighters painstakingly digging through the debris by hand, assisted by thermal drones, dogs, even robotic ones, to search for any sign of life. We'll be here until it's we're down to the street level, just to make sure if there are any victims under there, Hopefully we could get to them in time. Part of the Bronx building crumbled just after 3.30 Monday afternoon, while most people were still at work and school. But you can still see signs of life they'd left behind. Beds, clothing on hangers, even a baby stroller. Firefighters arrived on scene 90 seconds later, fearing what or who they might find. These deli workers on the first floor miraculously made it out as cracking sounds gave way to a hasty evacuation. They were able to um, evacuate on time before. because they heard the cracking noises. Yes, the Department of Buildings reports the structure was built in 1927. Work was currently being done to shore up the facade and to fix several open violations, though none structural. That report did find unsafe facade conditions, seven of them, uh, mortar that was deteriorating, cracked bricks. There is an active permit. The rest of the 50 unit building still standing with its future uncertain. Finland will reopen two of its eight border crossings with Russia, the government in Helsinki announced on Tuesday. The NATO state had previously shut down the entire border, citing a surge in asylum seekers that it claimed had been orchestrated by Moscow. The southern eastern Valima and Nirala crossings will resume operations, Finnish Prime Minister Pateri Orpo told journalists. The other six border stations will remain closed. Interior Minister Mari Rantanen added that the reopening is set for Thursday and that the decision is expected to remain in force until January 14th. If the number of asylum seekers increases again, the border stations could be closed earlier, she warned. Helsinki gradually shut down its border crossings with Russia last month, with the last one closing on November the 28th. Finland cited an increase in the number of migrants from its third nations seeking to cross into its territory from Russia as the reason for the move. It repeatedly accused Moscow of being behind the development, although the Kremlin rejected the claims as completely baseless. On Tuesday, Rantanen maintained that there was a state actor behind the new arrivals, adding that the situation at the border was not just about the numbers. The minister further claimed that the surge in a new arrivals was a hybrid operation aimed at destabilising our society, which Helsinki must resist. 
The authorities would monitor developments 24 hours a day, particularly during the Christmas holidays, she added. Helsinki is the newest NATO member, having abandoned its long-standing policy of neutrality soon after Russia launched its military operation in Ukraine last year. Moscow has said Finland does not pose a direct threat, but has vowed to take retaliatory measures against any actions that compromise national security. And French President Emmanuel Macron has suffered a surprise defeat in Parliament. That is after both left and right wing MPs rejected a key immigration reform bill supported by his government. The draft law was thrown out before it could be debated. With more, we rejoin this report now from Paris. It was the outcome that the French government had dreaded. A majority of MPs from across the political divide in the French parliament came together and agreed to block a debate on the French government's immigration bill. Right-wing MPs said the bill was too lax. Left-wing politicians criticised it as inhuman. For us Greens, it's a huge victory, as it was our proposal that the bill not be debated. For a year and a half, all we've heard is that immigration is a problem. This bill was disgusting. By rejecting this debate, we've once again protected French people from more measures that would attract illegal migrants. It was an embarrassing defeat for the French interior minister Gérard Darmanin, who had earlier presented the bill at the National Assembly at the start of what was expected to be weeks of intense discussion on the proposed law. Compromises must be made in the national interest to protect French citizens and our borders, to integrate foreigners and fight illegal immigration. Because French President Emmanuel Macron's party does not have a parliamentary majority, it needed the support of enough opposition MPs to debate and eventually approve its bill. The bill was a mix of measures. On one hand, it proposed speeding up deportations and cracking down on what the government calls foreign delinquents. On the other, it allowed some undocumented workers to be legalized in industries where there are staff shortages. Right-wing politicians said such measures would encourage illegal migration, while left-wing MPs called the bill an erosion of rights. The government's defeat in Parliament will be seen by many as a sign that President Macron is unable to build the sort of cross-party consensus he's long called for or deliver on one of the issues that remains a primary concern for French voters. Natasha Butler, Al Jazeera, Paris. Meanwhile, Moderna has said that its chief commercial officer, Arpa Garay, has stepped down from the role of CEO. Meanwhile, Stefan Bansal will look over sales and marketing, sending the shares of the vaccine maker down 5% on Tuesday. Garay, who was in the position for less than two years, will remain on as an employee through to June of 2024, the company has said. Her exit from the role comes at a time when the company, which is looking to break even in 2026, is ramping up spending on research and development as weak sales of COVID vaccines weigh on stock performance. The company had last month said it would be able to meet just the lower end end of its $6 billion to $8 billion sales forecast for 2023. In contrast, Pfizer expects annual sales from its COVID shot to be about $11.5 billion. Meanwhile, the CEO of Moderna, Barnsall, will now directly oversee the company's efforts to drive sales of the COVID shot and its preparation to roll out the vaccine against RSV next year. Moderna expects $4 billion in revenue in 2024 from the sale of its COVID and RSV vaccines. The company said President Stephen Hoge will be responsible for its pipeline commercial strategy and medical affairs. This follows the departure of Chief Medical Officer Paul Burton 
earlier this year. And human rights lawyers in the Philippines say the government has been unwilling to investigate drug-related killings under the administration of former President Rodrigo Duterte. Comes as Congress is urging the government to work with the International Criminal Court. Meanwhile, new President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. says it has no authority to investigate local cases. With more, here is Barnaby Lowe's reporting from Al Jazeera. It's been six years, but Arlene Gibaga still gets emotional when asked about her husband's death. She says she saw him being shot by police, but was forced to sign an affidavit stating otherwise. It says that I was at a neighbor's and was surprised to return and find my husband dead, but I signed it to protect my children. Arlene is one of several relatives of the victims of so-called drug war killings interviewed by Ideals, a group of human rights lawyers. The organization found that while the government says it's investigating dozens of cases, only five families out of a hundred surveyed were approached, and none have been able to file cases in court. Their main interaction with state actors was the, the murder of the relatives. So how could they trust same institutions. There have only been two convictions so far, one in the case of 17-year-old Kian de los Santos. His remains were exhumed from the cemetery in Manila last year. Now it's the site of what will be known as the Shrine of Healing. A memorial for the thousands killed during the war against drug crime under the administration of former President Rodrigo Duterte has broken ground. An urn with the names of some of the victims has been buried underneath. Human rights advocates say they were killed without the benefit of due process. The International Criminal Court has stepped in, and while President Ferdinand Marcos Jr. is adamant it has no authority to investigate local cases, Congress has passed a resolution urging authorities to cooperate. There is also a question should be returned. Uh, under the fold of the ICC. So that's again under study. In the meantime, these lawyers say they intend to keep helping victims navigate the domestic justice system and have proposed expanding the government's witness protection program. Crown Resorts, the gaming giant owned by New York headquartered private equity firm Blackstone, is investigating its chief executive, Kieran Carruthers, over allegations he intervened to allow patrons back into its casinos even after security had removed them. The investigation is expected to run for at least another week and is also considering whether the power of management should be restricted in some circumstances relating to customer safety. Among the allegations being investigated is an incident at Crown's Melbourne Casino, which occurred within the last month where Mr Carruthers allegedly intervened to reinstate a patron who was removed and given a one-year ban after bringing a minor under 18 person into the gaming area. In another, Carruthers allegedly allowed a drunk patron to remain in the casino after they were instructed to leave. It comes after several years of regulatory scrutiny at Crown and the company's smaller ASX-listed rival Star Entertainment, including a Royal Commission in Victoria. The Finkelstein inquiry also forced James Packer, the company's billionaire backer, to sell his 37% stake after concluding that Crown was aware that money was being laundered or likely laundered through its bank accounts as far back as 2014. And coming up after the news headlines, a new BRICS entrant looks set to default on an interest payment. You are watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. TNT. Here's what's making news. TNT Radio News. Matt Boyland here with a quick look at your TNT headlines. US President Joe Biden has promised to transfer another $200 million worth of weapons to Ukraine. 
Australia, Canada and New Zealand have expressed their anger at Israel's relentless bombardment of Gaza, which has so far killed over 18,000 Palestinians. The US House of Representatives has voted to approve legislation that would ban the imports of Russian uranium. And France claims to have successfully propelled a drone strike on one of its warships in the Red Sea. Globalist agendas, democratic rights at risk, corruption, propaganda. It never stops. For the news and views silenced by the mainstream media, by government and corporations, vote one. TNT Radio. Free speech always has a home here. Stay up to date with the latest live news and current affairs delivered by our lineup of expert commentators and hosts. Listen to TNT Radio anywhere you go. Ask Alexa or Google to play TNT Radio or download the TNT Radio app for free from the App Store or Google Play. Today's news talk. This is TNT Radio. Welcome back. Ethiopia will hold a call for its international bondholders later this week after the African nation failed to pay a $33 million bond coupon that was due on Monday, according to senior finance ministry officials, as quoted by Reuters. Last week, the finance ministry said the country's efforts to renegotiate the bond terms before the deadline for the coupon payment had fallen through. The sides had reportedly disagreed over how long to extend the maturity and spread out repayments of its single $1 billion international bond maturing in December of 2024. After the grace period of 14 days expires, the East African nation is expected to become the latest emerging market sovereign to default on its debt unless Addis Ababa successfully restructures it in time. Zambia, Ghana, Sri Lanka have all defaulted on euro bonds in recent years, while Tunisia, Pakistan and Bolivia also are currently at risk. Bloomberg has reported cited, citing bond market pricing. Meanwhile, Ethiopia, which requested a debt overhaul under the G20 Common Framework in early 2021, had managed to service interest payments on its international bond until now. According to the statement issued by the Ethiopian Finance Ministry, the nation will seek a broader similar treatment from bondholders. It would be important to treat all our creditors equitably, the ministry said. While struggling to pay its debts, Ethiopia is also seeking a four-year loan from the International Monetary Fund. Ethiopia will become a member of BRICS on January the 1st. The invitation to join was approved in August and extended to Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. The group currently consists of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. And Ukraine has backtracked on its threat to boycott the 2024 Olympic Games, having previously claimed its athletes could skip the event in Paris after Russians and Belarusians were cleared to compete under neutral status. Speaking to the RADA TV broadcaster on Monday, acting Ukrainian Minister of Youth and Sports, Matvey Bedny, said that the Paris Games could instead serve as a powerful platform where, through our athletes, we can speak about the conflict. It makes no sense to lose such a platform. I think that withdrawing ourselves would be pointless, he added. According to Bedney, Kiev will instead focus on working with international sports officials to prevent Russian athletes from taking part at the Olympics, which will be held in the French capital from July 26 to August 11th next year. We have a little over half a year to do everything we can to prevent the Russians from getting there, the minister declared. The International Olympic Committee ruled on Friday last week that they would be allowed to take part in the Paris Games as individual neutral athletes. 
That status bars them from displaying flags, colours and other identifying marks connected to their countries or showing support for the Russian military operation. Athletes with links to the Russian armed forces and security agencies, as well as those who participate in team sports, will remain banned from the Games. Moscow was also angered by the decision from Olympic bosses. Russian Sports Minister Oleg Machison described the terms imposed by the IOC as absolutely discriminatory and going against the basic Olympic principles but offered assurances that athletes who qualify for the Paris Games will not be prevented from competing under neutral status. And the visit by Ukrainian President Zelensky to the US is an attempt to pressure Americans to give up their fight for border security and allow more funding for Kiev instead, Republican Senator James Vance said on Tuesday. On Monday, Zelensky arrived in Washington, where he was scheduled to meet with US President Biden, who is struggling to secure congressional approval for the new multi-billion dollar aid pledge to Kiev. Speaking to Fox News' Laura Ingram, the Ohio senator called Zelensky's move to seek more funding utterly disgraceful. Vance added that the Ukrainian president is coming to the US lecturing Americans and demanding more of their taxpayer dollars. He said Zelensky's visit will end with an undignified process in which the Ukrainian leader will demand that US lawmakers sign off on further funding to all be labelled puppets of Russian President Putin. After arriving in Washington, the Ukrainian leader gave an address at the National Defence University at the US, claiming that the delays and scandals related to the unresolved issues on Capitol Hill are inspiring the Kremlin. Commenting on this, Vance said that if you want to secure your border first, you are actually a Putin puppet. He said this publicly today and added that he found it disgraceful and grotesque. Last week, a bill that was supposed to provide more than $110 billion for overseas security, including more than $60 billion for Kiev, was blocked in the Senate. It came as Republicans demanded tougher immigration controls on the southern US border. And on Tuesday, Zelensky, who was scheduled to meet Biden to discuss the continuation of defence cooperation between the states and their coordination of efforts in the coming year, according to the office. And meanwhile, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov reiterated that Moscow would prefer to achieve its goals in the Ukrainian conflict politically and diplomatically, noting that Russia is still ready for negotiations. But in October, Zelensky signed an official decree banning any negotiations with Russia under President Vladimir Putin. Meanwhile, Zelensky's meeting with US senators, their response was not what the Ukrainian president wanted to hear. Republican Senator Missouri's Eric Schmidt said that the meeting with Zelensky was effectively reduced to the same old stuff. There's nothing new, he told journalists, adding that the questions for Ukrainian president were very scripted. Meanwhile, House Speaker Mike Johnson, who also met with Zelensky, pointed to the fact that the White House and Kiev were asking for billions of dollars with no oversight and no clear strategy that would allow Ukraine to prevail in the ongoing conflict. And uh, meanwhile, iconic Australian rocker Jimmy Barnes has today announced a health update, revealing that he will undergo open heart surgery in the coming hours to combat an infection that has now spread to his heart. This new update comes as the former cold chisel frontman recently cancelled his remaining gigs for the year as he dealt with a bout of ill health. Unfortunately, I got some bad news late yesterday, Barnes began. Despite everyone's best efforts, the bacterial infection I've been battling over the past fortnight has apparently now spread to my heart. It's infected an otherwise healthy valve that was replaced some years ago due to a congenital defect. So I'll be going 
into get open heart surgery over the next few hours to clear out this infection and put in a clean valve. Barnes, who is 67, said that the operation would obviously take me out of action for a while, which he said was hugely frustrating as just a few weeks ago, I was the fittest I've been in decades. Barnes wrote that his latest deterioration in health had come on very suddenly, so it would take some time to figure out what will happen with his upcoming shows. Earlier this month, Excuse me, Barnes was forced to cancel his headlining slot at a Victorian festival, telling fans he faced an extended stay in hospital as he battled a serious bout of bacterial pneumonia. And in breaking news, Brooklyn Nine-Nine actor Andre Brower has passed away at the age of 61 of an undisclosed cause after a brief illness. And coming up after the break, Scott Ritter calls out the Pentagon, Jesse Waters calls Dick Durbin a liar, and Paul Kelly says Australians are ready to shatter political conventions. You are watching and listening to Compass on TNT Radio. De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. A few weeks ago, I wrote an article in CFACT about how people completely missed the true meaning of those storms that were blasting the UK three to four weeks ago. While they screamed climate change, climate change, climate change and warming, they were blind to the fact that this was indicating the pattern was going to change and that Europe was going to turned cold and snowy, and a bit earlier than normal. So now they claim everybody is surprised for one, and for two, naturally they're blaming warming. Well guess what, there's a lot of rain going into Western Europe now, and it's quite warm. Wait till you see what's gonna be like two to three weeks from now. Now if you say, Joe, how are you telling us this? Why doesn't everybody know? It's because no one bothers looking anymore. Experts are now saying that a sign of a warming world is more snow. Now wait a minute, 25 years ago they said the opposite. And yet, when I was in third grade, my dad gave me a weather book because he knew I was into it. It was an entire chapter on why it would snow more if the earth started getting warmer. It means there's more water vapor in the air. And even though it warms up in some places, it doesn't warm up enough. So if there's more water vapor and it's still below 32, it's going to snow more. That was taught also in college back in the 1970s. So here we go again with people coming out with these ideas when they can't explain what's going on because they have absolutely no knowledge of what actually happens with the weather. They don't forecast it. And who do they blame? Warming. This is a scam and a sham. And the more I read about it, the more I try to be nice and look at the other side of the position, the more I realize this has nothing to do with climate or weather. This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog Meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. When a crisis hits close to home and across the globe, nonprofits are on the front lines ready to serve. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. The demand for charitable services has skyrocketed, and nonprofits are rising to meet the needs. Healing. Nurturing, rescuing, honoring, protecting, caring, inspiring. The work of philanthropic organizations of all sizes across all missions has never been more important. And it's donors and volunteers like you who make all this possible. Thank you. Together, we change the world. The Nonprofit Alliance. You're with Jason Olborn and Compass on today's News Talk Radio, TNT.
Welcome back. Scott Ritter is a former U.S. Marine Corps intelligence officer and former U.N.'s weapons inspector. In an op-ed he wrote, recently the Pentagon admitted it couldn't account for trillions of dollars of U.S. taxpayer money, having failed a massive yearly audit for the sixth year running. Audits only began in 2017, which the Pentagon has failed every single one. This year's failure made some headlines, was commented upon briefly by the mainstream media, and then just as quickly forgotten by an American society accustomed to pouring money down the black hole of defence spending. The defence budget of the US is grotesquely large. It is $877 billion, dwarfing the $849 billion spent by the next 10 nations with the largest defence expenditures. And yet the Pentagon cannot fully account for the $3.8 trillion in assets and $4 trillion in liabilities it has accrued at US taxpayer expense, ostensibly in defence of the US and its allies. As the Biden administration seeks $886 billion for next year's defence budget, and Congress seems prepared to add an additional $80 billion to that amount, the apparent indifference of the American collective government, media and public to how nearly $1 trillion in taxpayer dollars will be spent speaks volumes about the overall bankrupt nature of the American establishment. Audits, however, are an accountant's trick, a series of numbers on a ledger which, for the average person, did not equate to reality. Americans have grown accustomed to seeing big numbers when it comes to defence spending, and as a result, we likewise expect big things from our military. But the fact the US defence establishment increasingly physically resembles the numbers on the ledgers the accounts have been trying to balance, it just doesn't add up. Despite spending some $2.3 trillion on a two-decade military misadventure in Afghanistan, the American people witnessed the ignominious uh, retreat from that nation live on TV in August of 2021. That alone would equate to more than $7,000 for every US citizen. These numbers are mind-numbingly large, so large that they've become meaningless to the average person. The US defence enterprise is so massive that it is literally a mission impossible to speak of balancing the books. The American people might be willing to shrug off an accounting error or two, but the defence budget equates to American military power and the perceptions of national worth that translate into notions of American exceptionalism. Fact of the matter is that our cavalier approach to defence spending has resulted in fraud on a massive scale, wrote Ritter. The American people were sold a bill of goods, a military capable of projecting power worldwide to sustain the so-called rules-based international order upon which the notion of American exceptionalism was premised. And as it turns out, the US military is as hollow as the numbers on the Pentagon ledgers. We failed to defeat Al-Qaeda, ISIS and the Taliban. And we're not able to defeat either China or Russia, let alone regional powers like North Korea and Iran. And yet we will simply continue to invest in seemingly unquestioning fashion into this enterprise, expecting somehow that a system that cannot pass an audit will somehow magically produce a different result, despite the fact that we, the American people, are doing nothing to demand such a result. In short, he summarised the defence budget is the equivalent of pay to play, in which the American people pay the US government to produce the results necessary to sustain their overinflated sense of worth. But when you allocate money to a system that has been allowed to become conditioned to operate without accountability, don't be surprised when the shiny mansion on the hill you thought you were buying turns out to be little more 
than a house of cards. And one of the most interesting things I've noticed in the new media landscape, of which TNT Radio is a part, is how the mainstream media is catching up, albeit being kicked, dragged and screaming into this new reality. Whilst here in the new media, we can see these trends and end games as clear as day and have so for many years, the rest of the population, including the journalists and politicians, eventually come around with their bubbles bursting or bulging. And so the Jeffrey Epstein story could be the plot of a movie. It involves a man of dubious means, of incredible wealth, with no known qualifications being involved with some of the most powerful people on earth. So when this story emerged on social media, it was around about 2015. This was when people were starting to pay attention to potential change being in the air with both Democrats and Republicans running anti-establishment candidates in their primaries, those being Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. Fast forward to 2023, where Joe Rogan is looking at a new billion dollar contract with Spotify. His popularity is that large and Alex Jones being reinstated to X after his huge interview with Tucker Carlson. The independence in the media drawing massive audiences, which the establishment like we've shown this with Jacinda Ardern and Al Gord recently on this show complaining about and even demanding action taken against those who won't cooperate, who choose to look down the rabbit hole. Here is Joe Rogan talking about Alex Jones and Jeffrey Epstein. If you know the guy, if you get to know him, like I have, I've known him for more than 20 years. And if you know him on podcasts, you realize like he is genuinely trying to unearth some things that are genuinely disturbing for most people. Like this is a guy that was telling me about Epstein's uh, island a decade ago, at least. He was telling me about it. I was like, what? You're telling me there's a place where they bring elites to compromise them with underage girls and they film them. Really? Like, what? Yeah. Like, no, President Clinton's been there. Everyone's been there. I'm like, what? It sounds like nonsense. And not only is it true, but people keep getting murdered for it. Did you see that latest Clinton advisor that got murdered about yep. it? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Hung with an extension cord, shot himself in the chest 30 miles from his house. And they're calling it a suicide. In 2005, police in Palm Beach, Florida, began investigating Jeffrey Epstein after a parent reported that he had sexually abused her 14-year-old daughter. Federal officials had identified 36 girls, some as young as 14, whom Epstein had allegedly sexually abused. Epstein pled guilty and was convicted in 2008 by a Florida state court of procuring a child for prostitution and of soliciting a prostitute. He was convicted of only these two crimes as part of a controversial plea deal and served almost 13 months in custody, but with extensive work release. Epstein was arrested again on July 6, 2019 on federal charges for the sex trafficking of minors in Florida and New York. He died in his jail cell on August 10, 2019. The medical examiner ruled that his death was a suicide by hanging. Stephen Hoffenberg hired Epstein in 1987 as a consultant for Towers Financial Corporation, a collection agency that bought debts people owed to hospitals, banks and phone companies. Hoffenberg and Epstein then refashioned themselves as corporate raiders using Towers of Financial as their raiding vessel. One of Epstein's first assignments for Hoffenberg was to implement what turned out to be an unsuccessful bid to take over Pan American World Airways in 1987. During this period, Hoffenberg and Epstein worked closely together and traveled everywhere on Hoffenberg's private jet. In 1993, Towers Financial Corporation imploded when it was exposed as one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in American history, losing over $450 million of its investors' money 
and in court documents, Hoffenberg claimed that Epstein was intimately involved in the scheme. Epstein left the company by 1989 and was never charged for involvement in the massive investor fraud committed. It is unknown if Epstein acquired any stolen funds from the Towers Ponzi scheme. And in 2015, the Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that Epstein invested in the startup Reporty Homeland Security, rebranded as Carbine in 2018. The startup was connected with Israel's defence industry. It was headed by former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak, who was also at one time the defence minister and chief of staff at the Israeli Defence Forces. The CEO of the company is Amir Elihay, a special forces officer, and Pincus Bukras, a director of the company and former defence minister, director general and commander of IDF Cyber Unit 8200. There have been more than 20 civil cases against Epstein and his estate since 2008, most of those since 2015, and an almost complete lack of will from those in authority on what really was going on behind the scenes. In November, Senator Marsha Blackburn sought to subpoena the flight records of those who flew on the airline, nicknamed the Lolita Express, but since have been stonewalled by Judiciary Committee member Dick Durbin. Jesse Waters on Fox has been following the case and says he won't stop. Here is part of his report recently aired on Fox. The government has been hiding Jeffrey Epstein's flight logs since he committed suicide four years ago. Fighting international sex trafficking should appeal to everybody, no matter what political party. We care about women and children. We care about law and order. We care about corruption. So when Senator Marsha Blackburn from the great state of Tennessee tried to subpoena the flight logs of Jeffrey Epstein, we were surprised that Senator Dick Durbin from the great state of Illinois was making it difficult. Chairman Durbin, can I ask you a quick question? Um, why won't you subpoena Jeffrey Epstein's flight logs? So who are you? Hillary Vaughn with Fox. With Fox, of course. Uh, I don't know anything about his flight logs. But why won't you subpoena them? Why don't you want to know? I don't know the issue. I know who Epstein was, but I certainly don't know anything about the issue. Well, he was charged with sex trafficking, so why don't you want to know who was utilizing never his private been, plane? Never been raised by anyone. Well, Senator Blackburn has wanted to subpoena them, and there hasn't been a vote in your committee. He said a word to me, not a word. But aren't you curious, like, what high-profile or powerful people might be closeted predators and pedophiles? Doesn't that concern you? So why won't you subpoena them if you can? It's the first time anyone has raised it. Thank you, Fox. So do you, are you curious about it? Will you do it? Durbin's a liar. Last week, Primetime asked his office why he was blocking votes to subpoena Epstein's flight logs, and they said there wasn't enough time. And then at today's hearing, Durbin complained that Fox was asking him to investigate sex trafficking. Poor little dick. Durbin. So Jesse Waters calls the 22-year veteran of the Judiciary Committee a liar. That is something we would not have thought about eight long years ago. This shows us how far we've come and just how long it takes for a competing idea to permeate the mainstream and collective consciousness. Let's play the clip to remind us why Waters called out Dick Durbin. Senator Blackburn, before you leave, I want to make a point for the record since I understand you made some statements about the Jeffrey Epstein flight logs. There's a Fox reporter in the hallway who asked me about this. And I said, I had not spoken to you one time about this issue. I think you'll back me up on that. I'm not, not mistaken. I didn't know that this was even a subject of your amendments, which 
if you recall, you were the first on the list until the two-hour rule was invoked. Uh, I don't know anything about this request on your part. I'll be happy to discuss it with you. But I haven't done any discussion with you to this point, correct? Mr. Chairman, I know, and I think you're fully aware that I had two amendments, I one wasn't. dealing with Epstein and Sotomayor. I brought it up previously. I Since we're in the business of issuing subpoenas now, here are a few more that I've filed. A subpoena to Jeffrey Epstein's estate to provide the flight logs for his private plane. Thank you, Senator. Um, when I recognized you, I didn't know what subject you wished to speak to. As I announced at the beginning, the first thing we'll consider the two judicial nominations, then we will move to the subpoena. All right, so we caught him lying. First, there wasn't enough time. Then this was the first time he was hearing about it. Then it was never brought up in his presence. Why is Dick playing dumb? And why hasn't he voted to subpoena the flight logs already? A week's gone by. Dick says he cares about Israeli women and children getting raped. Why doesn't he care about American children getting raped? This is another story that will not go away. With those in power capable of acting when it suits their interests, not ours, and equally not acting when it suits their interest and not ours, the lack of action only adds to speculation and conspiracy theories, even though those theories are proving to be more accurate than the official narratives. Do we need more establishment political power or less? This distrust is spreading throughout the world, even into Australia, who could believe that? And so it is that the old rules of politics are fa falling apart. The electorate is more temperamental, divided and volatile. The troubles of the Albanese government have two sources, its own mistakes and the fracturing of our political culture into subcultures, writes Paul Kelly in The Australian, who interviewed the director of Redbridge polling group Cosmos Samaris, who says the Albanese government needs to move quickly. It needs to pivot drastically to an economic narrative that talks to these outer suburban areas, but Labor is going to be pulled from pillar to post. I mean, talking about the Labor Party in general, the majority of the people who work for the Labor Party, they don't live among these people in the outer suburban areas. The staffers don't. They don't live in the areas. At the 1949 election that began the Menzies era, 96% of Australians who voted cast their votes for the major parties. At last year's federal election, this figure had fallen to just 68.3%. It means one third of the electorate is choosing a primary vote outside of the major parties. This is a long run and pervasive trend. A fracture culture is creating a fractured politics. At the last election, five and a half million Australians voted for something other than the major parties, Samara said. I think that will be well over six million at the next election. The people are waiting. They're looking for an alternative. There'll be more pressure on the major parties. The concept of a safe seat is starting to die. On the Labor side at the last election, the seat of Fowler was the canary in the coal mine was not an exception, it was a sign of what is coming. One of the safest seats in Western Sydney was lost to former Premier Christina Keneally to a local with some standing. Now, the voice referendum reveals the erosion of our common purpose. The internal tension over the Israel-Hamas war is another prime exhibit. The central disorganising principle, hostility between the public and the elites, left or right, and the public's distrust of, uh, of institutional political power. Australians feel an absence of connection with many high-profile issues. The Voice was a peak episode of that. They quickly realised that The Voice was being pushed by people engaged in the power networks in our community. 
concept of power is critical here, and the people rebelled against it. What we are starting to see here is the development of Australia and the, sign, the, the same type of schism that we see in the US politics, and it's starting to become an issue. He said, right now they are eating into their savings, living off their credit cards, and that's why it was so important in the first 18 months to ensure Labor got its cultural settings right. These people would say to us about the economy, I don't expect politicians to fix everything. I know this is a complicated problem, but I want them in my corner. But what the Albanese government did by focusing on the voice for so long was to bake in the brand that Labor wasn't interested in the concerns of the Australian people. Labor spent the first 18 months defining themselves as a government that culturally doesn't connect with these people in political terms. It's not easy to undo things once you have convinced people who you are. Meanwhile, he argues that the Liberals are still short of being genuine contenders to win the next election. The current danger for Albanese is being reduced to minority government and the long oblivion that follows. This would be the second minority government in 15 years, but the bigger problem for our democracy just gets bigger alienation and fracture in the political system. And so it is what we're seeing now is the political unwill to get to the bottom of the JFK assassination, a story that won't go away, 9-11 truth, another story that won't go away, COVID origins, a story they won't even touch, and the Jeffrey Epstein customer list and flight logs. And so as the media starts to gain momentum in these so-called taboo stories, we watch and see how the mainstream politicians are backing themselves into a corner just as the political fray changes and likely will see the return of Donald Trump one way or another in a massive fight next year for the White House. Well, that concludes today's show. I hope you've enjoyed it. This is Jason Olborn for Compass. Coming up next is Chris Smith. You've been watching and listening to TNT Radio.